episode of Schooled. Um, this month is a Mental Health Awareness Month, so I thought it'd be really cool to delve into some issues uh, that a lot of young adults, millennials, zennials, Gen Zers face um, when it comes to mental health. And something that seems to be more common these days is this overwhelming sense of feeling uh, lonely that a lot of people, not just young adults, a lot of older Americans report this as well, but it's really interesting that a lot of young adults feel this way as well, especially given how socially connected we are these days. So I'm joined by a really awesome guest today, Carrie Moore. Um, is that how you pronounce your name? Yes. Good. Um, it's not spelled commonly, so I want to make sure I get it right. And Carrie, you have your own psychotherapy practice, but you also are part of this amazing group called Sidewalk Talk. Tell me about it. Sure. So I'm a psychotherapist in New York City. My practice is right around the corner on Broadway. Uh, it's a group psychotherapy practice, so it's myself and seven other therapists, and it's called A Good Place uh, Therapy and Consulting. And I started that practice in 2015 uh, after a long career in nonprofit management, and I uh, was very happy to make that transition. Although in making that transition, I also found myself feeling lonely and in mm -hmm. really having a need to really connect more with others and into, you know, always be working towards being a part of something bigger than myself, which was always what I did in such a, a core focus of my own purpose and mission my whole career. And so growing into the group practice was one of, you know, one of those things that I did to make that happen, um, in addition to really connecting a lot with other providers who are, and other people who are out there kind of doing their own thing. Now, did you have to, like, go back to school when you made this huge transition, or did you already no. have your psychology degree? Nope, I have a, a master's degree in social work, oh, and cool. I was already licensed as a clinical social worker. Oh, convenient. Okay, Yeah, great. so that, that works out. So I was, you know, overseeing, uh, you know, clinicians on teams and mm -hmm. overseeing clinical programming at community health centers um, gotcha. and at nonprofits, you Very know, my cool. whole career. So. I've always had, you know, that responsibility to oversee, you know, the, the clinical aspects, the mental health programs. Gotcha. So starting the private practice was was um, still very different from a lot of what I what I did before, but um, it was it was a I think made sense in terms of my trajectory and what I was looking to do. Yeah. Um, and then I I hadn't really been involved with any volunteer activities, and of course, really missing, um, you know, some of the ways I was able to give back in nonprofit world, and um, then I learned about Sidewalk Talk. So tell me, what is Sidewalk Talk? So Sidewalk Talk is an initiative that promotes compassion and empathy and in the art of listening through um, putting chairs out on the sidewalk um, in different cities around the world and providing um, just free, heart-centered listening. That is so cool. <laughs> when I read about it, I was just like, this is so needed, especially nowadays. Um, so how does it work exactly? So, so so I'll tell you a little bit about how it was founded and yeah. how it kind of got started. And, and I think that also kind of speaks to what my interest was in it. Um, Tracy Rubel, um, who is a CEO and founder, is a psychotherapist in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, she and another therapist were you know, found themselves really upset and feeling, again, isolated in their uh, the confines of their therapy offices after the Sandy Hook shooting. Mm -hmm. And um, she had this burning desire just to kind of take her therapist chair and put it out on the sidewalk and say, free therapy. <laughs> I want to be here and see you and hear you and, and make sure that, 
you feel cared for and, and heard. So she's based in Connecticut. And, um, no, she's no, she's based in San Francisco. San Francisco. Okay, yeah, gotcha. And she, um, you know, so she she that it evolved over time to really be more about the art of listening and not therapy. And you know, there is a, a difference between those those two things. And um, mm-hmm. in that way, also allowing her and the other you know, people who are really involved in getting it start up and, and you know spreading the word to really carry it to more places around the world and also to really train people who are not just therapists, but people who are just interested in, um, in really honing their own skills of being you know, listeners and really providing that service to, uh, you know, to strangers um, you know, and just being, being there for other people in that way. So it's now spread to, uh, I want to say, over 40 cities. We have wow. over 1,200 volunteers, wow. and it's worldwide. Yeah. So um, the time – so I started doing Sidewalk Talk Inns this last September 2017 and learning about it through my friend who is a therapist in San Francisco, Mary Ellen Mullins. And she was doing uh, some volunteering with Sidewalk Talk herself, and I said – we're, who's doing that in New York? Because I want to, I want to go and do that this weekend, and and then that was when she put me in touch with Tracy, and Tracy said, "Well, you know, you're in luck because no one's doing it in New York, and <laughs> maybe it could be you." <laughs> so, you know, I did agree because, um, you know, I really have a lot of respect for Tracy and for my my friend who's, you know, a big part of it, and so I I took it on and um, agreed to to become the city leader and to to really kind of start the initiative here in New York. So cool. So how do you advertise for it? How do people, is it word of mouth? It is it's word of mouth. And then, of course, people see us out there and they take, and I love it when photographers are out there taking pictures and I tell them, like, make sure, you know, here's a hashtag and email me if um, anyone gets in touch with you and wants to be involved. And so, of course, we, we build it the more and more that we do it out in the streets in New York. Um, I also advertise a lot within um, with social media and within the networks I'm a part of, and also uh, just with like on therapist listservs because mm-hmm. it's a real natural fit for therapists who, who kind of uh, often feel, you know, alone and isolated in their therapy rooms, and they want to give back and, and do mm-hmm. more. I also kind of now start to pitch it to other therapists as a way to really build and grow their own skill sets because Mm -hmm. sometimes we get away from you know the art and the importance of really truly listening and and truly just um, relying on the presence that you have in the room with your clients Mm -hmm. and that first and foremost um, you know providing that that service and doing that being present in that way more than anything else and for me I really find the more and more I do sidewalk talk the more I talk about it and make pitches to other people to get involved with it the more I'm actually um, the more I'm really absorbing that myself and really becoming a better therapist. So, and so do you find that the fact that people are receptive to this idea that, you know what, I'm just going to go out and talk to this stranger about my problem on the streets of whatever city, New York, San Francisco, wherever, does that kind of speak to the issue of loneliness that a lot of people may be feeling, especially young adults? Yes, I think that's a really good question. People really were surprised to to learn about how it was taking off in New York. And I think that just goes to show that people have a lot of stereotypes about New York that aren't true. Mm -hmm. And we can very easily just get caught up in our own worlds and put our guards up and have our defenses up and just, you know, go from, you know, point A to point B in our little bubbles. And Sidewalk Talk really, really helps you just take that guard down and be open, you know, to really seeing strangers on the street and to, you know, being open to having some deep and meaningful conversations. So mm. it is and really what different. what kind of it, things do people talk to you about? Oh, people talk about 
all kinds of things. You know, so, sometimes it is just, um, but you know, they usually take the opportunity to talk about something that they wouldn't just be talking about with a random stranger on on the subway. So sure. So they they often because um, I don't know if it's because they know that some of us are therapists or because of the way that we present ourselves with no strings attached. We just want to hear what you want to talk about, what do you have to get off your chest and what's really bothering you. Wow. And people kind of bring things that they aren't so easily able to talk about with other people um, just because of what you know their relationships are like or what expectations are. Sure. So, I mean, a few examples um, you know that have come up recently are uh, one young woman who was really eager to get out of her small town in Texas. And she was, I, you know, she came to sit down with us when we were at Columbus Circle in the subway. She was so excited. Um, her eyes are just like open to this like world in New York. And then she said, I need to get out of my small town, but it's not, no one in my family has ever done that. Um, her family had come originally from Mexico. And she said, the expectation is that we're there taking, you know, taking care of our elders and that we can't, you know, leave. And what would it be like for me if I were the first one mm. to leave? And so sometimes people come in and it will be a big, you know, issue contemplating a big life change or something. And other times they want to um, sit down and talk about, um, you know, relationship problems they're having, um, some struggles in their, their own families. Um, I, I find that people often start with something more intellectual and maybe mm -hmm. even about sidewalk talk or mm -hmm. about, you know, what we're doing as therapists. Um, they sit and they say, oh, oh, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I like to do free mediations or and yeah. they like to kind of start that way. But then when you sit and you ask enough open questions and, and you're just present with them, then they can kind of let their guard down a little bit and talk about things that are more meaningful and a, a little bit um, deeper at the so core. So cool. so we sit down and we just kind of try to disarm people so that they can feel comfortable. Hmm. It is also a number of, um, you know, issues around, uh, you know, like gender issues, uh, race issues, um, people feeling lonely and disconnected, people on journeys to discover who they are and hmm. to, you know, just develop courage and, and strength to put themselves out there and go after their dreams, um, you know, it, it kind of runs the gamut as far as what, what people really sit down and talk to us about. And that's what also kind of makes it really interesting. It is. It's <laughs> actually very fascinating. And let's talk about that, the loneliness aspect, because um, that's what, you know, I wanted to focus on today. And specifically with regards to young adults, we are, as I mentioned earlier, and obviously you know this, we are more socially connected than ever, digitally connected than ever. We're part of this global community um, that we've got instantaneous access to. And yet so many of us feel very lonely. I believe there was a study in about 30 percent, actually. Uh, feel like these, you know, large, uh, overwhelming feelings of loneliness often, despite, you know, being in constant contact with people, with other human beings. Uh, and I know it's it's a deep, you know, issue. It's mm. probably not something we'll get to tackle all of today. But can you just kind of start to help us unravel where some of these feelings might be coming up, coming from in the context of, what, 2018 or the last 10 years or so? Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's due to a, a couple things. Like we definitely see it in our practice a lot um, with millennials, and um, and partly it's due to people relocating to New York specifically for careers or for graduate school. Um, it's also I think social media has a role to play in terms of what people perceive, um, you know, and the negative comparisons. Like if they see their friends or people in their network 
always showing the best sides of their self or having a good time. Or in the case of, of one of my clients, it was noticing pictures of a party that he wasn't invited to. Mm. That sometimes that, that can be, you know, that can really make somebody feel pretty lonely and, and depressed when they see that. Wow. I also think that, um, you know, that just more and more we're, you know, moving away from friends and family and kind of the core where we grow up. And um, in order, when you're doing that, you really need to make an effort to build your new network. And I community. Think yeah. To build community. Yeah. You really need to make that effort. And there's no shame in making that effort to do that. So I, I see a disconnect in that people make these big changes. They follow their careers. They move you know, to several cities. They move to different countries. But then to say, I'm lonely or I need to make friends is somehow a shameful thing. Hmm. Why? And where, did, where does that come from? I think it comes from this idea that people you know, really start to believe that about themselves or about other people that if you if you are lonely or if you say that you need to make friends, it means that you don't have friends and that mm. you're unlikable or mm. you're weird or you're awkward or, you know, it implies other things about you. Right. If you have struggled in, in your past with kind of feeling, you know, lacking confidence or having lower self-esteem um, or, you know, being bullied, which, you know, which comes up a lot with our adult clients because it does shape who our sense of ourselves when, when you are bullied as a young child and yeah. or even, you know, middle school or even in, in college or high school, any of those levels that has a big impact on how we view ourselves and how our identity is shaped. And so sometimes being in, in even though you're very different as an adult and you're you've grown up a lot, you carry some of that stigma those ideas of yourself with you mm-hmm. and then it can it can serve as a barrier to really reaching out um, and doing things that you actually need to do in order to kind of develop um, real authentic and meaningful relationships with other people you know you mentioned something about people relocating often it's uh, it's pretty necessary in our economy example like I've moved around several times you know since I started my career um, and I guess it sort of depends on what career you have and what trajectory you're on but I guess more often than not these days a lot of people do have to move outside of maybe their hometown to seek opportunities and like you said some people just want to get out of their hometown to you know expand I guess their environment Um, so with that said though the flip side of that is as I mentioned earlier the economy right it's it doesn't Mm -hmm. it hasn't been the greatest for millennials especially Mm -hmm. since 2008 Uh, a lot of people have degrees they can't use or having to you know Mm -hmm. do jobs that traditionally pay less than maybe what their parents were making um, or what they should be making. It's delaying their ability to buy homes um, Mm -hmm. and to, you know, start investment plans and to start families and all of these things. And I guess that lends itself to the idea of the lower self-esteem that a lot of people feel as well, because you Mm -hmm. don't, we're taught that we need to be self-sufficient and successful, but then we don't live necessarily in an economy or in a society where the economy lends itself to that for the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so because of that, you mentioned that it's difficult for people to build communities. So then what happens when we're not able to build those communities, when we're not able to have a sense of belonging, you know, that sort of um, I guess was the foundation, you know, mm-hmm. that maybe we grew up with in our own community. What happens when we don't have that as adults? I think it can lead to pretty profound loneliness. And with that, you've, you have a lot of anxiety and depression. 
And often, you know, a vicious cycle can ensue in that you're less likely to put yourself out there when you're not feeling great about yourself, when you're not um, seeing yourself in environments where you're um, having great conversations, getting affirmation about who you are, getting reinforced, all those positive things being reinforced, then, you know, the opposite can really take hold in your alone and just sitting with what you think are the worst parts about yourself. Mm. And so I think that, um, you know, often it will be harder and harder. And it really, like the work that I do in my practice with people is about um, really helping them, you know, take a look at what are some of the self-limiting beliefs that they might have about themselves. Also seeing maybe how those, they carry, they take those beliefs with them into situations and then maybe perceive things differently as a result and situations like uh, in social situations that um, that maybe you know if if you have a strong sense of self in a strong identity a little off-handed comment that somebody makes about your (laughs) shoes or (laughs) about about an idea that you had is not going to necessarily bring you down or make you not ever want to open up and talk again but if you're you know coming into a social situation and you know the situation is rife with any number of ways that you could feel a slight or be offended, then your, you know, your ears are going to be perked to that. And then it's going to be, you're going to internalize it a little bit more. Right. And so you might need to really be, you know, a little disarmed and to be able to go into a situation and be open-minded and, and to know that, um, you know, that there could be other ways to really see a situation that also it's a lot about how you are and, and how you act in that situation and um, what it is that you might choose to do differently. So, so it might involve, um, you know, really, you know, doing that work to explore your beliefs and see what is, you know, limiting what you can do in spite of, mm-hmm. and also just what you might um, be able to do yourself. What the ways that you can get out there, make friends. How do you, how do you really look to build relationships with people who you have things in common with and who have that capacity for something a little bit beyond the surface. How do you maybe get away from people who aren't serving you in that way? Maybe who, who like you know, you're that person who's surrounded all the time, you know, invited to every party, but you just don't click with those people, and they don't right. represent your value system, and you feel like the loneliest person in the room. <laughs> right. How do you get away from those people, and how do you really seek um, to build relationships with people who who um, you can actually have? Um, you know, more meaningful connection with. You mentioned this word disarm a couple mm-hmm. of times, and you mentioned that you try to do that with people in sidewalk talk, the, the strangers that come up to you on the street to talk about their problems. Mm-hmm. How exactly do you do that? It is, it is. In, I think with sidewalk talk, it really is about sitting down, putting your own agenda aside and asking questions and being curious about them. That it really starts with, showing that person, you know, you matter, and I care about what you have to say, and it's very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And um, you can say, you know, whatever it is that you want to say that you need to, you know, get off your chest because I'm going to be here listening to you and being, wit- you know, kind of bearing witness to that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I when, when you were talking and talking about feeling like the loneliest person in the world, I know me sometimes I go into situations and, and Actually, sometimes it can happen with people I've known for years, but I just feel like there's this emotional wall there 
you know, mm-hmm. that that prevents me from really connecting with people. And I, I know a large part of that is is because I've got my guard up, right? We don't mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. to be too vulnerable. But I've noticed it, the older I get, the more I become aware of it. And I think it's because I'm becoming more aware of this, you know, sense of loneliness that is so pervasive. Yeah. And and so in in doing that, do you ever counsel these these strangers on the street or give them I guess, solutions or potential suggestions as to how they can disarm mm-hmm. them o- their own selves and form stronger um, human-to-human connections with the people in their lives? Yeah. I think it's really cool that you shared that, that <laughs> personal example. So thank you for that. I think, I think that um, what you're saying is exactly how we overcome it because I do – I wanted to say about millennials in particular and the pervasiveness of – loneliness with the with this generation is partly that we're seeing it and we're talking about it mm-hmm. more so than before and we're recognizing it as a real need and you know it's something that we we have the capacity to really change and have you know and whether there's like an area that we can have an impact and so I do think that just having those conversations and acknowledging it, <laughs> it, it gets you to the point where you can ask that question and you could say, well, how do I do that? Yeah, yeah. You know, and that we, if we weren't having this conversation, we wouldn't even know, we wouldn't recognize it in ourselves and we wouldn't know how to change it. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know to even ask, what do we do about it? Sure. So yeah. I think, I think it, it takes, um, you know, it takes a strength, ironically, <laughs> maybe to be. <laughs> vulnerable right because you're putting yourself out there and there's a risk definitely (laughs) yeah Yeah. I mean there's a real risk in that you could you know somebody could make fun of you or they're not maybe going to share the same you know this this happens a lot when um you know people feel like well why why am I the one that's burying my soul and and the others seem stronger than me um you know you know for example in certain industries it is not seen you know, as a strength to right. be true about what your feelings are. Right. But in, in some of these industries, um, it is more important than any other place to be having this conversation and to allow people to be human. Um, and in, in particular, there's, you know, kind of an epidemic in healthcare with suicides, yeah. and, uh, do- you know, medical doctors completing their residencies, um, you know, starting out in the field and, and committing suicide. So wow. when we see you know, problems like that that we know is about how do we have these conversations? How do we take it to different settings? How do we look at where the stigma is particularly harmful? Right. And then um, how do we facilitate these conversations and help people connect and see each other, you know, human to human? That it's not and a it's, weakness, it's a sign of a strength when you can do that. And it's so true because when you were talking, I was thinking a lot of us probably don't even realize what is actually happening in our minds you know we're we're still kind of um living through this i guess um proliferation of social media in our society just how it's kind of changed almost every aspect of our society and mm-hmm. and i think it's it's taken a while for us to realize you know to catch up to the reality of what of what is happening you mm-hmm. know um mm-hmm. with our own emotional well-being at least um and it happened so quickly right in the mm-hmm. last decade or so mm-hmm. so i think a lot of people probably haven't even realized where some of these feelings are coming from, you mm-hmm. know, and so maybe mm-hmm. I at least being able to identify that is also helpful 
you know, as well. And that actually brings me to my next point because it seems like as wonderful. Like, I love social media. I rely on it for work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I can't tell you how many stories I wouldn't do if I didn't have social media. But the other aspect, and, you know, a lot of researchers have um, documented this, is that it is sort of eroding the social skills that we need Mm -hmm. to make the human-to-human connections that you talk about, right? Mm -hmm. So where, where is the balance? Like, how do we strike that happy balance? Yeah, I, I think that's tough. I think people need to um, need to go beyond the ways that they connect through liking and commenting on each other's <laughs> posts. And they need to make an intentional effort to see their friends mm-hmm. and to make plans. And if they're not invited to the party and they're feeling sad about it, can they feel strong enough to maybe um, plan a party or invite a few friends over for dinner or to take initiative in some way. Mm. You know, so I think that people really need to um, to go beyond social media. A- another thing I just happen to notice socially is that people are out together and then they're on their phones. I don't know All if you've noticed this, time. but it's, it's been my time. pet peeve yeah. for as long as I can remember. And I'm so guilty of it, but I don't notice it when I'm doing it. Yeah, of course we're noticing it when everyone else we're with is doing it. Yes. And we ourselves are doing it too. But I, I you know, I think... And I, I see this all the time. Of course, now that I'm a little bit out of that generation, I can, um, you know, look look at it and be more critical of it. But I almost but. feel like it's a compulsive thing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it it's something I do without even thinking about. Mm-hmm. And that's how I know it's like a compulsive action. And and I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a very compulsive in that way because we get we you know, I guess we get the adrenaline rush from checking the phone to seeing mm-hmm. who's reaching out to interact with us, like who, who um, you know, is liking or commenting on one of our posts. And then what does it say about me? Yes. Or about what I had to say. Yes. Or, you know, we're looking for um, to be seen, right? And yes. Have this affirmation. But what about, you know, the people that we're with at the table? Yes. You know, let, let's like make sure that that we're looking to them to give us what we need, too, and that we're kind of focused on being there for them in that same way. And let's just be honest. It's almost like a popularity contest. You know, how many likes can I get? How much attention can I garner from this post or these words? How witty can I be? You know, mm-hmm. and then when that goes away, we're, we're just left with ourselves. Right. You know, right. and we're alone with our thoughts. And and I think that's where these feelings that we're talking about start, start to creep in. Mm-hmm. Because it, honestly, mm-hmm. if you're somebody who may have low self-esteem or may have some of these unaddressed mental health issues, social media may help to mask it. Mm-hmm. But those issues are still there. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess the other fascinating thing um, about the Sidewalk Talk um, organization and the work that you do with that is you said it also gives, um, I guess, psychotherapists or volunteers a chance to be a part of a larger community themselves. Because Mm -hmm. you said, you know, people in your line of work often feel lonely and isolated. So is there sort of a symbiotic relationship in that sort of community building? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's really, for me, it's been good to be a part of bringing the psychotherapy community together in that way and and asking them to really lend their skill sets and also to just be able to listen in that way. And I hope that it it is, you know, an affirming thing for them to be a part of in that sense. But I also think um, for people who aren't psychotherapists and who take the training to become volunteers, 
there there's multiple benefits for them as well. Um, not just what they feel about themselves when they can really practice with intention, that mm -hmm. art of listening. It is such an empowering thing because I don't think we're used to listening in that way. Mm. And um, what they and can learn about other people. Do you think that's something that is specific to the more recent generations? Or you, do you think it's like something that's long been a problem? I think it's, I think that it's, it's, a, it's hard to do. Mm. I, I don't think that it's something that comes naturally mm. just to be a good listener. Right. <laughs> and I think even for therapists, it, it doesn't necessarily just come that naturally. I That's think. surprising. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think maybe more so than other people because we're trained in it. But I think, um, you know, often there's this charge that you're you're there to really um, helping somebody work through, you know, their problems and that there's like an active component that does require you to kind of be engaged in that process. And um, and that sometimes it is harder to really put the listening at the forefront. Mm. And that said, sometimes that is all your client needs when you're a therapist is to really be validated, to be heard, and to know that you're that sounding board, um, you know, for their pain or their struggle and what they're bringing to you. But um, I find in the therapy room, I, I am, you know, through the intention and the practice of sidewalk talk, it helps me when I'm doing um, coaching with couples because that is what exactly what I'm doing with them. Mm. The methodology that I use in couples counseling is um, is really helping them talk to each other. And then I serve as a coach, giving uh, the support and the advice and the suggestions while they're having that conversation together. So it is always helpful for me in the kind of ways I've sat down to practice sidewalk talk, <laughs> lending, you know, um, to help me in that in that therapy room, too. But I think for people, for people who aren't therapists who are volunteers, you are honing that skill set. Um, you are you're really seeing your ability to make somebody feel good and to feel heard, mm -hmm. and I think that can feel really good. You're also meeting other people who are doing something, um, also taking this risk, putting putting the chair out on the sidewalk and saying, "Does anyone want to come talk to me?" <laughs> <laughs> and then there's something that that uh, you know I think in sharing with that experience can just allow for a deeper connection with other volunteers. Hmm. And so we've had a couple volunteers come out who are kind of transplants from other places. And Sidewalk Talk is actually, on our most recent one, a young woman from Australia um, who's here uh, to, you know, take a contract job with the company. And then she looked on Meet, uh, she looked on Eventbrite for okay. events. And then she had saw Sidewalk Talk, took the volunteer training. And then, um, you know, here we were listening together, learning about each other, um, and then having a, a drink and a bite to eat afterwards, you know, together. And now she's a part of this, you know, this network of volunteers. So, That's so cool. you know, so there's ways that people who come and volunteer with us, they can also, you know, build community and meet with other people, get to know people who are like minded the way that they are, that other people maybe um, I would say like myself who have had difficulty in relationships since post-election and then finding, well, what are the ways I need to be intentional to see what's similar instead of always focused on what's different. When you say post-election, you mean 2016? 2016. <clears throat> How has that um, affected people's relationships that you mentioned? Well, I've seen, I've seen that have a big impact on, you know, my clients and their family relationships primarily. Oh, because different viewpoints, political. Right, different political viewpoints and causing divide in families. Mm -hmm. And then it's also come up a lot in sidewalk talk. 
um, just people wanting to talk about it in the way the impact that it has on them. I wow. mean, I mean, think every day in the news that there's something that really is getting under people's skin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so people are wanting to talk about it and invent. And, like, and it's hard, I guess, because you're not supposed to talk about it at work. So then who do you talk to? Well, it can be difficult, especially when, you know, some we, you know, especially when there's people who are in marriages where people are aligned different differently politically, <laughs> right? Where they're not, I mean, they're not, they're not aligned and they have different political point, points yeah. of view. And I think there's something different um, that was represented in the 2016 election um, that just shows a growing divide and almost like highlighted, okay, this is a problem now where we're either this or we're that. Sure. And it becomes this like all or nothing kind of paradigm when before it was like, I have some beliefs that are closely aligned with this sure. ideology and then yeah. but normally I'm thinking this right and um but it just doesn't seem like that anymore it really is like here's the line in the sand it didn't you're, used to you're define. either this or you're that yeah. and um you know and I think that that can be pretty dangerous for us to absorb and then to carry on our lives that way and start to you know cut people off entirely right um and it that can be a really isolating, especially if it's happening in your family and with your closest friends. You know, something I think was interesting that I was reading is how, you know, we're, we have this biological predisposition to be social creatures and to be a part of the pack. Mm -hmm. But then we increasingly live in a society where, you know, I and individualism and self-sufficiency are, are promoted, you know, especially people who are able to go it alone and do it themselves. But in actuality, we're all very interconnected. We can't, nobody can just exist, you know, in a bubble by themselves and thrive. We just mm -hmm. don't. We're not made to do that, right? But mm -hmm. when, when we exist in a society, especially, I find this among my peer, my peer group, where we're made to feel like, you know, we must, we must be individuals. We must achieve a certain amount by a certain age. We must be self-sufficient, but we don't necessarily have the tools, you know, to do that because mm -hmm. of some of the issues that we spoke about before. It really weighs on a person's sense of self mm -hmm. um, and self-esteem. And I know myself personally, for a long time, I felt alone in that regard. I felt like, you know, I was suffering and nobody else was feeling the way I was feeling, you know, mm -hmm. and I didn't mm -hmm. really talk about it, you know, but what it boiled down to was just feeling like a failure, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and the more that I began, began to talk about it, the more I began to see that so many people kind of are struggling with those same things. Do you find that, especially among your younger clients, trying to, um, you know, struggle with defining or, or I guess forming a sense of self even when you know it's not really clear how best to go about doing that and then receiving mixed I guess uh, messages or um, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, I guess just mixed signals you know mm -hmm. from different mm -hmm. parts of society as to who they should be and then does it create a further sense of isolation you know mm -hmm. in their in their environment yes I think so I think I think this whole idea of this rugged individualism has a big impact on our psyche and the way that we view ourselves because there is that expectation that we 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 go off, we follow this trajectory where we're leaving home to go to college, then at college we make our friends and then those friends are going to be our friends, you know, for the rest of our lives and we're going to go get um, careers and be successful and, um, and this is what 
you know, are charges to do when when <laughs> right. all those those things, um, you know, if they don't go according to plan, um, can really make you feel like a failure. If you go to college and you move away from home and you're not, um, you know, you're in a new setting without any of your, you know, former friends, and then you are not maybe in the the dorm room with the people who you have like the most in common with. And then before you know it, everybody else is forming groups of friends around you. And then you're left with, like, who do I really like? Who do I re- who's like me? And right. who, do I, who do I really connect with? I think that that can be very isolating and a very kind of lonely experience. It's also because um, there's a key point in the expectation that is set just by how that happens. With You're going to go away to college. And then you're going to be away from your family, and then your friends are going to become your family. Right. You know, just think about what happens then when you don't find those people. Right. When exactly. It, then it's like, well, I have I have no one. Right. And I think um, same thing happens in the workplace, especially in some of these um, workplace cultures that really promote a lot of socialization, and where a lot of people are um, recruited specifically from you know specific universities uh, to work in in these settings. You have a lot of high achievers people who are all, you know, on the outside showing that they're kind of living that example of that success. Um, People are becoming fast friends. And then for one reason or another, you're not fully making those connections um, that, you know, again, can just be very isolating. I think I think expectations are also really key because when we I think that we need to take collective responsibility for the expectations that we set Hmm. that I think of course, each individual might have their own set of expectations, but it's also like when everybody, when you, when you just are, are raised to think that this is how we have to be and that's not happening for you, that's, you know, really disappointing. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. know, so I think So I think we need to look at the individual expectations as well as like how as a society we set those expectations. When we have conversations like the one that we're having right now and when, you know, somebody like you who has this outward appearance of, you know, success talks about feeling lonely and kind of going through hard times in your own life. That's very kind of you. (laughs) Well, you do. So when then people say, well, me too. And that feels good. You know, it feels good to kind of say, like, I'm not such a loser. I'm not so alone. You know, other people have these same feelings that I have. And um, I really believe that that's the way that collectively we can work together to kind of break down those barriers. It brings me back to when I was an undergrad and I um, I hated college my first two years when I went because of that. My parents were just like, go to school and do well mm-hmm. and then do well after that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I was just kind of meant to, like a lot of you know young kids, figure it out. And I didn't. And I, I do not, to this day, I am not ashamed to admit it. It took a long time. But I was not ready for college. I was not emotionally prepared. I certainly wasn't financially prepared. But more importantly, I was not emotionally prepared for college mm-hmm. because of exactly what we're talking about. Yep. I didn't feel secure enough to form those bonds with people. I didn't know how, really. And it's it's amazing because I never thought of it as in terms as you did, you put just now, which is you're supposed to form another family away from home. You know, and how do you do that, right? Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you don't even have those skills to begin with, how do you do that? Um, so that can have like a whole ripple effect. But it wasn't until I studied abroad <clears throat> in South Africa for the first time that I felt like I was a part of a larger community. Mm. And the reason is because society is just different. There's just a communal sense of living that is part of society there. So, for example, when I was there, um, you know, apartheid, it was it was over, but 
obviously the remnants of it are mm-hmm. long lasting and were still pretty prevalent, right? Yeah. And despite all of the economic insecurities, even the xenophobia that you know I saw on a daily basis, the misogyny, um, one of the highest rates of rape in the world, one thing that was positively consistent was this communal sense of living. And so my friends that I formed in South Africa are like people I'm still in touch with today and still consider friends because they accepted me into their family mm-hmm. because we were all away from home. Um, and we we all needed, you know, a, a family away from home. Yeah. But it was part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And then when I came back to the United States, um, I joined a sorority, I think in part because I wanted to be a part of that community again, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Um, and so it was fine, you know. I think I found, um, obviously, some lifelong friends through that. But it was I've never had an experience like the one I had there, mm-hmm. you know. So it would, you know, my my goal now is to do exactly what you're talking about doing, which is be intentional, yeah. right, about yeah. forming communities and about forming meaningful relationships. And part of that is just being vulnerable. Yeah, you know? I think absolutely. It sounds like your experience in South Africa was also a lot about acceptance, yeah. And it was not, you know, having to prove yourself. It was right. like we're here now um, together and this is, you know, this is our community. Yeah. And you're just with open arms accepted into that community, you know, to learn and to, you know, be a part of what was happening there. And, and that um, that goes that can go a long way. Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's something that doesn't really happen in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess not as often. You know, yeah. it does happen in some uh, different social circles, obviously, but um, it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, definitely not. And I'm sure you see yeah. that all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also, you know, it also comes up where people struggle with uh, maintaining those relationships with their friends and family who are abroad or in other cities. And I think that it does take also intentional effort to have time on the phone and to make sure that you're you're constantly cherishing those relationships where you've made meaningful connections. Mm -hmm. And I talk with my clients all the time about that who are, you know, living here from somewhere else and and struggling. It's like, you know, really who are the people who you want to have in your life and, and how do you kind of make that that a practice to, you know, connect and to keep those people who are important to you in your life. Yeah. You know, those people will continue to fill you up and help you feel good about who you are, like the core sense of who you are and and um, they don't, of course, like the f- physical proximity is is really helpful, um, but you know it can also con- you know you can continue to maintain and, and sustain those relationships even though you you might be living far. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end, um, and I want to be respectful of your time. So I could go on, but um, <laughs> this was a really great conversation. Are there any parting thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners that you maybe didn't get across earlier? Well, I think I just want to speak to the point about the shame, Mm -hmm. the shame with feelings of loneliness um, or the social anxiety that people might feel. I think um, there's no shame in it, especially when uh, you when you when you acknowledge it, that is how you can overcome it, that you um, might be in the situation because of a brave um, step that you've taken to, you know, pursue a dream, you know, to pursue an education or a new job and that there's nothing wrong with putting it out there 
to your community and to your network and saying, hey, introduce me to some people. I'm new to New York or whatever mm-hmm. you need to say. Um, put, put yourself out there. Sign up for some, you know, an athletic league. Um, find ways to connect with other people. Um, I, I recommend therapy as a way to help do that. So you have that sounding board. You have that that support on the person who's just going to be in your corner helping you um, make sense of that and take those steps because it does uh, take courage. And I also recommend getting involved with, um, you know, volunteering. Mm. I think whether um, you're interested in this um, topic of loneliness or social disconnection in isolation, if there's anything that we spoke about today that resonates with you, then I invite you to come and volunteer with us uh, for Sidewalk Talk. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carrie. This is amazing. Um, And I really hope our listeners got a lot out of it as much as I did or maybe more. Um, And again, it sounds like your organization is doing amazing work to sort of build the communities that we need more of. Um, in in America and in our global community. And thank you all for listening. Um, please follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all of them at Schooled Podcast. Really easy for you to find. Um, and I can't wait to have you back again. Take care. Bye. <laughs>